Keyboard Kimura AV Network is presented by OneBone. Fall is here, and OneBone has you covered when it comes to looking fresh as the temperatures start to cool. From numerous short sleeve styles and cuts, to long sleeve selections, hoodie options, the Essential Bomber, and the Trench Hoodie, OneBone has styles, colors, and sizes to meet all your needs this fall. As a supporter of the Keyboard Kimura AV Network, use promo code ESK10 at checkout. That's my initials, ESK, and the number 10 for 10% off your order. Based in Montreal, everything is Canadian made, but ships all over the world. So check out the website, onebone.com, or download the app and join the OneBone family today. OneBone, big and all. picture in the strawweight division got a little bit clearer though it's still a little cloudy sunday october 2nd i'm e spencer kite he is harry powell and these are the next day's takeaways on the keyboard kimura audio video network greetings and salutations everybody i love getting them to laugh right off the bat this is great i love getting a smile a like this is ridiculous your names are ridiculous out of harry right out of the bat sunday morning we watched ufc Fight Night, Dern versus Jan, yesterday, UFC Fight Night Vegas, uh, 61. It's in the books. We are here to do our thing. We are here in CRISPR video on my end as the new Mac has arrived. The mic situation is still being worked out. I wasn't going to make Harry sit and wait for me to go through all of the loading and uploading and fixing and tinkering this morning to get it going. We wanted to just jump in, and that we will do, starting with the main event. Yan Jiaonan wins a five-round decision over Mackenzie Dern, has three rounds where she is the superior striker, the dominant fighter within the fight, has two rounds where she's got to deal with the oh-shit factor of Mackenzie Dern initiating, creating grappling situations. It's a very good win to me in terms of the overall performance, just to go out there in her first main event to get through 25 minutes to navigate those couple of tricky spots. But the greater takeaway for me, and I'm sure it is for you as well, is that, oh man, Mackenzie Dern is is so talented, yet still limited in in a number of ways. And it's just going to cost her. And I don't know that she can ever bridge that gap and, and take it to that next level. You are a grappler. You were most likely at the gym at some point today. Or or will be soon again. I I now recall that you probably weren't. I hope you're feeling better. Um, you are a grappler, though. When you watch Mackenzie Dern in this fight, when you watch her just in general, do you feel like she is someone that will be able to bridge that gap and add more to her game to make that grappling better? Or is this kind of where she's going to top out? So... I slightly disagree with the points on Yan Nan. I think it's an impressive win in that 
she gets the win in the first main event, right? But uh, she didn't look good in the grappling situations for the most part. Um, she made mistakes that initiated the second round grappling exchanges. She took Mackenzie Dern on off a fake kick and then allowed Dern to pull guard, didn't pull out, and situational awareness, these sorts of things. I mean, in the first round, she did so well to negate the clinch situations and negate the grappling situations. And the thing that impressed me the most about her in the first round was her use of range. Right? She was all the way out, almost double the range with which you'd expect in an MMA fight. And that was really smart because she was definitely the the faster fighter. So if Mackenzie was going to shoot a double leg or a single leg or look for a clinch, she'd have to cover a lot of distance so Jan would see it coming. And equally, if, if Mackenzie Dern was going to close the distance with hands, Jan had a good chance to step in and, and meet her. Um, but that sort of fell away in the second round. And then after that, it felt as though Jan was so worried about the grappling and for good reason. She was so worried about the grappling that the game plan fell out of the window and Jan was just fortunate enough that she was a superior striker, stronger in the clinch for the most part, and was able to negate the grappling for another two rounds to secure them. Um, before we talk about where Mackenzie Dern is and, and what her ceiling is, because I think we've pretty much seen the ceiling, is how close are you to giving those that, that second and fifth round 10-8s? Because the second round, to me, I wrote in my notes for the second round, it had dominance and it had duration. I don't know whether it had damage or, you know, fight ending intentions, right? Right. And then in the fifth, I think it had duration and dominance again, but I'm, I'm not sure. Now, my line of thumb, and this is why I ask you the question, is my line of thumb is I take the advice that Shawnee uh, gives, and that's that if you're questioning whether it's a 10-8 round, right. probably, it's probably not. not a 10-8 round. But then I went back, as always, and checked Sean's tweet, and he's like, we could see a momentous occasion here where Mackenzie Dern wins a fight after losing two rounds. After losing three rounds, sorry. Right. Um, what do you think about that? So I think they're both close. I think they're both very close. Um, the omoplata into just sort of like maintain a shoulder lock of some kind in the second round looked horrifically uncomfortable. I thought she was going to complete that and finish there, either continuing to torque the shoulder into ridiculous positions or transition it to something else. In the fifth, I think if there's a little bit more steam on the punches, if it, if they're doing a little bit, bit more visible, clear, impactful damage, I would be quicker to say, yeah, absolutely. But when you see, and like, I don't reference this because they're meaningful, but when you see the like strike numbers and it's these, she's now landed 80, 90 unanswered blows and Yan's still just like, yeah, cool, fine. Right. There's no point where she's like, she's not busted up. She's not really covering up in the sense of I need to do anything more than avoid these landing flush on my face. And so I would lean second round far more than I would lean 
fifth, I think Mackenzie Dern made a mistake in the fifth by waiting as long as she did and taking as long as she did to decide on an attack or get to an attack. But it was close. It was one of those fights where we're watching it. I felt like completely understand people saying 10-8 and what do we got in terms of scores. They weren't for me because the rest of the 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 rest of the damage wasn't there and that's where subs become a challenge in that damage sort of piece of of judging right is how impactful and how damaging and how ultimately threatening is that second round omoplata into continued shoulder lock it looks really deep it looks like there was a point that Yan Jonan is kind of like, this is super uncomfortable and I don't like it. But to me, it's not as deep as I've got my arm under your neck and you're being forced to peel hands or I've extended into an arm bar and you're forced to super scramble and roll and move and do all the right things to get out of it. And so to me, they're 10-9 rounds, but they're close, they're borderline. And if, you know, as I said, if in the fifth round, Mackenzie Dern has a little more energy and she's got a little more steam on those punches, you can maybe get there. And maybe that opens up quicker opportunities to attack that last attack. But I think the judges, generally speaking, got it right in that one. Yeah, so my, my only thought on that is I don't think the Omoplata was super close. Um I think, and this is a stereotype, but but generally, uh, females are far more dexterous than than males are. Right, and um, there wasn't a ton of leverage on on the arm. Uh, it was sort of a weird kimura type, omoplata back body lock type thing. Um, but Mackenzie transitioned well to a head and arm, but wasn't able to get the shoulder under the chin and all of these things. But just the the transitional nature of her grappling was insane, right? Beautiful. There was no point that Jan looked like she was escaping. It just looked as though Mackenzie was rolling with the blue belt in the gym and allowing her to work a little. The thing that worries me slightly, or not worries me necessarily, I don't have really emotion about it, but the thing that I noticed was in the second when she was landing shots and again in the fifth when she was landing shots she kept looking at the ref like am i doing enough is this enough and and it it feels like whilst yan didn't have a route out and again i don't think just putting your hands on your head is intelligent defense um i agree that they weren't damaging enough to necessitate uh, a step in necessarily right um but if you're having to look at the ref, you're not doing enough. And and I think it speaks also to who Mackenzie Dern is, a, as, is as a person, that she would prefer a submission because it's cleaner and less damaging in most parts. And instead of using that back control, belly down back control, to, as we've said, stretch smash. out and just bridging your hips in, and having all the leverage in your hooks to land big shots on your opponent, she's keeping her knees together, keeping tight in the back mount, and having less leverage, but landing the peppering hammer strikes. And don't get me wrong, um, 
She was dominant in those rounds, absolutely dominant. But I think when you get to those positions, especially in this fifth round where I was very impressed by her aggressive nature of just, I'm just going to throw the kitchen sink, walk through this. Right. Follow now. Jason Perillo's direction to a T. Right. I mean, I don't know what he said because I don't watch with comms. But, but uh, it's, it's a dichotomy for Mackenzie Dern. I'll now answer your first question. The dichotomy for Mackenzie Dern is that age is against her. She's been doing combat sports most of her life. Right. So her body won't be in the best shape regardless. It will have taken knee injuries and shoulder injuries and hand injuries and all of these sorts of things just by grappling to then transition to MMA where you are learning an entirely new skill set and you have to completely change the way that you grapple in order to be the most efficient. We've clearly seen that Mackenzie is lethal on the ground. And when she gets you there, the likelihood is that you're not going to get up until either you are submitted TKO'd or the referee calls time on the round. But it's, um, I don't think it is enough because it's not smart to fight the way she, she fought in the final round. And I mean, smart from a health perspective in that she just walked through a ton of shots was super aggressive, got to the takedown and and did the things. But it feels like that's her route to victory in, in most fights, right? It's because at 32, is she 32 or 31, something like that? You don't have a ton of time to bolt on the necessity, the essential parts of MMA to then utilize your grappling. And I think that the ceiling for Mackenzie Dern is basically where we saw last night that Yes, okay, if she goes back and Jason says, look, if you were to just put 15%, if we were to fuck Trevor Whitman's advice, right, <laughs> and if we put 15% on those shots, either she would have given us a neck, she would have given us a head and arm choke, she would have given us an arm, she would have given us an ability to get her out of there, maybe, especially when, you know, if Mackenzie Dern's on top of you with three and a half minutes to work, it's a long three and a half minutes for you to be on that mat. Right. So maybe the adjustment is, when you get somebody there, you you do the things and you you expend a little bit more energy on the ground. But then the problem still stands at the first, the third, and the fourth. She wasn't able to get her there. And she right. So Mackenzie Dern is 29. She will turn 30 in March. Cool. Um, but but the point generally still stands. She has been doing jujitsu since she was three. She competed at the absolute elite levels for a very long time and has now transitioned into MMA and is competing at close to the elite level. The thing that's interesting to me and the thing that I, I look at every time I, I watch Mackenzie Dern fight, they talked about it during the broadcast yesterday. You notice it when she fights is that the takedowns, the entries, the, the means of getting to where she is best just isn't there or it's very rudimentary. It's very basic. It was interesting to me that the kind of traditional shots and traditional entries where she's looking for a single or she's looking for hips or she's looking to sort of step through completely unsuccessful great balance from Yin Jun on also sort of Mackenzie Dern just doesn't have that wrestling. But then the two times she got her to the ground kind of successfully lengthily are from upper body sort of shoulders, head. And it makes me, 
as just very rudimentary in terms of my grappling understanding and application go what why are we even bothering with singles like if you can get in there and get this woman down by getting double unders or over under around a shoulder and a head and can throw her i i agree i know there's various mistakes in there and there and and both times she actually did it i believe she had the thing that we talk about all the time with the head and arm throws of if you don't do it correctly the other person can take your back Mackenzie Dern's just Mackenzie Dern and is able to scramble and reverse and, and fix yeah, things. I might take it in the first round from yes. that same thing. Yes. And so the 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 answer to my own question of, of will she be able to, I think is just no, because I don't think the wrestling is ever going to come to a point where it's the thing, and I, I want to stress this, and I probably make this point every so often that we talk about high-level grapplers, it's the thing that made Damian Maya so great to me is that Damian Maya came in. Yes. As a world champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu player, but that man had wrestling and he had an understanding of, I need to do X to get to Y and did it successfully. And I don't think Mackenzie Dern can, you seem to agree with that. I don't know if it's whether she can, I just think it's, it's a question of time versus efficacy. So uh, MMA is such a wide game. And, and I think that more and more that if you don't have a solid wrestling foundation or a solid grappling foundation, solid takedown game, you're going to struggle. And, and unless you're going to devote a significant amount of time to bolt that on, you're going to struggle even more. Now, Mackenzie Dern... I don't know if she's a wife, but she's at least a mother. Um, and that's a significant portion of your day and a significant portion of your mental energy taken on raising a child, right? Probably the most important job in the world. So the question to me is, how is she going to? If she is going to, how is she going to bolt on some of that wrestling? Because we've talked about this previously, and I think we saw this in this fight, is that when game plan A fails, a lot of fighters are reduced to the fibers of their being. And the takedowns that you see Mackenzie Dern use are basically gi takedowns. Right? You make grips, you take them down, and they work, right? Right. Well, in the first round, you know, it's a it's a stereotype and it's a meme at this point about women's MMA and head and arm head and throws. Arm throws. Right. But the reason they don't work, you saw in the first round, because you're dropping your hips to the mat before your opponent's hips. And actually, I think we see it in the Castaneda fight. If not, we see it in, oh, it's the Santos fight, I think. And maybe that is the Castaneda fight. That is, yeah. There's a couple of fights where I've made some notes about it being really silly to drop your hips to the mat before your opponents, especially in MMA. Um, and for Mackenzie Dern, like, I don't have a problem with her shooting singles, but why not just pull? from the single yeah right? like use leg attacks to sweep or just go to x guard go to single leg x go to positions that you're comfortable with from that pull and use that as your entry right like right. You have get yourself however you can to round. where you're potentially at best right right and i think in the fifth round that's what happened right she had an overwrap from uh yandranan having an underhook and just sat to guard and Yan was like, oh, I guess I'm playing guard now. Right. I guess I'm playing jiu-jitsu now. Right. 
I mean, and and that's a you know, Damian Meyer did that at times, right? When he couldn't get the takedown, he just pulled. Fine. Like if if grappling is your X factor, and in the same vein that we talked about, Bo Nichols wrestling is going to be his X factor in his career. Mackenzie Derns is the submissions game. So right. if if that's your X factor, well then it's all well and good tailoring a game to be the most well-rounded fighter in the sport. And that's important. But if you've had a life of being a specialist, you kind of have to just right. lie in the bed that you've made and, and tracing those steps backwards seems counterintuitive. Um, right. So it's, you know, it's whether Mackenzie Dern can bolt the things on that she needs to, in order to take a step to be a contender. I don't think she wins a title. Um, but there's some fun fights for her if she is able to to bolt on some of the wrestling. So we've spent the majority of this talking about Mackenzie Dern. I think I think rightfully so. It is the more interesting conversation to have coming out of that fight. I do want to acknowledge it's a good win for Jan Jonan to get back into the win column after two straight losses. From a divisional picture, I think wherever she was in the world last night, Marina Rodriguez is raising a glass and and got a big smile on her face because we talked about coming into this fight on the severe preview show that this felt like an opportunity for Mackenzie Dern to sort of jump to the head of the pack of future title contenders. If she's able to get the victory, she was not, I think it to me, given, given what is on tap in the division, given what is already scheduled and the sort of unknowns of when Rose Namajunas fights again, and what Jessica Andrade is doing sets Marina Rodriguez in a position to where if she's able to beat Amanda Lemos next month, she kind of holds that pole position. And we obviously have to see what happens in the championship fight. But I feel like this result gave a little bit of clarity to a title picture that still has some X factors, that still has some former champions that we know get preferential treatment, that we know get sort of you know, skip the queue access. But somewhere, Marina Rodriguez was smiling because she she saw the result that she needed to see to maintain her spot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've talked about this and the division's in disarray, really. Um, there's a log jam at the top and there's a log jam in the middle and there's a log jam at the bottom. Um, this is a fight that really shouldn't have happened. Um, I think you don't match Rodriguez and Lemos either. You do Marina Rodriguez for the title. And then if she wins or loses, Frank, I mean, if she loses, fine, you move on to the next one, whether that's Yan Shuanan, whether that's Mackenzie Dern, whether that's Amanda Lemos going in and getting a win against somebody else, who knows? Um, but you don't, you don't need to do this. I mean, this is something that is just, I mean, let's not do a conversation about divisional <laughs> problems. But this is a conversation about divisional problems, and this is um, this is something that we're seeing in other divisions as well. And and uh, you know, then you look at Marina Rodriguez, who, in, in our opinion, has done enough for a title shot, right? And is now having to fight a murderer, uh, <laughs> right? And if she wins that fight, cool, that's fantastic. And then if she wins the title, she'll have to, you know, probably take a rematch and and win the title twice because such is MMA at the moment. But then the question is, well, who does she fight? She's knocked off a number of contenders already. So right. we're doing rematches for titles. Like that's not fun. That's not interesting. Right. That's not what we want 
in MMA. We want fresh, interesting matchups and the title to have value. Well, if the title has to be won twice and then the only way that you defend the title is by rematching fighters, that's not interesting. You challenged me earlier in the week to kind of put my matchmaker hat on and go through and sort of look at a couple of these divisions. We have an event. We have a week coming up without an event. Very well could be something you see on Keyboard Kimura this week as I sit down and sort of go through. I may even let you pick the division and I will go through and sort of sort out how I think we do it. But we move forward. Co-main event of the evening, Randy Brown defeats Francisco Trinaldo, 29-28 across the board. It is the one fight that you told me you haven't gotten a chance to watch yet. You've watched a minute of it. I told you my synopsis of it is that the first 10 minutes play out largely like the first minute that you've seen. The final five minutes play out with Francisco Trinaldo just controlling on the ground, being the superior grappler, Randy Brown being probably a little tired, a little unsure of how to get this 44-year-old, you know, Brazilian red Brazilian Redwood off of you, as they repeatedly correctly referred to his nickname uh, throughout the broadcast. It's a good win for Randy Brown. It's, you know, it's it keeps him moving forward. I think it's one of those wins that people are never going to appreciate and put as much value into because Trinaldo is 44, because he's never risen beyond sort of the lower third of the top 15 at lightweight back in the day. But four straight wins at welterweight is is difficult. If it was easy, more people would have four, five, six straight wins at welterweight. And so Randy Brown gets the win that he, he needs. And now we just sort of wait and see the direction the UFC takes with him. What are your thoughts on Randy Brown just generally as a fighter? I know you didn't watch this fight, but you've seen Randy Brown fight. We've seen the evolution from when he arrived in the UFC. What do you see him as? Is this sort of where you see maybe kind of him topping out? Yeah, I mean, we. I still, I still think, and I guess that's the interesting thing. Like, we're going to talk about Brandon Allen soon, right? And, you know... Brendan Allen's been given enough chances to show us who or what his ceiling is. And I think at this point, you know, we know what his ceiling is. But with Randy Brown, as I said, I haven't I haven't watched the full fight, but Francisco Trinaldo is a really tough out for everyone. He has big power. He is a Brazilian Redwood or a Fire Hydrant or, you know, a Stone Boulder, whatever you want to call him. He can do the grappling. His top control's good. He has a good gas tank. Like he's a tough out for anyone, really. And to go and to get a win over Trinaldo, especially if it's two rounds of being outstruck and and not being taken down, well, that, that gives me a little bit more intrigue in, in Randy Brown. And that gives me questions to ask about whether he can roll on and, and, and bridge himself up the gap. Do I think he's a top five fighter at welterweight? No, no, I don't think that. Right. Um, but do I think that he might replace Francisco Trinaldo in that, in that arena, in that, you know, area of welcoming guys to the top 15 and being a litmus test. Yeah, maybe. And that's a huge achievement, a huge achievement, especially if he can keep it. Four fights at at welterweight is no joke, as you've said. And he'll probably get a, a tough matchup in his next one. You might see him headlining this time on a on a fight night somewhere in the future. Um, so it's good stuff for Randy Brown. You know, wins are wins at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and Let's see who he gets next. Yeah, it should be, in my opinion, 
someone with a number next to their name, someone in that lower third. Um, obviously, most of those individuals, most of those gentlemen want to fight forward. That's where you've got sort of the Shavkat Rachmanovs of the world, Michelle Pahayas of the world that are also on winning streaks. But there's got to be somebody in there. There's got to be... Magni. Yeah, the, the Neil Magnies of the world that you can get Randy Brown in there and test him and just see. Because as you said, maybe it is that he becomes a just outside the top 15 guy. Fine. That's an accomplishment given that, you know, not even 10 years ago, he's strictly a boxer, gets plucked from, I think, his fourth or fifth fight as a professional and brought into the UFC. It's odd to me, and I said this in my recap yesterday, that more isn't made of him being one of the better overall success stories from all of these talent search programs that the UFC runs, whether it's looking for a fight, contenders, the ultimate fighter. Because over these last bunch of years, he has the most wins of anybody that has done one, come from one of those shows. Now, he doesn't have the most profile. He's not as far up in the rankings. I would argue some of that is the division that he's in and the opportunities that he's been given. But he's done the damn thing. And it's kind of what you want to see from a guy that, like, he is, he is the kind of person where if we get more Randy Browns from these shows, then these shows are successful. And that, to me, is okay. We continue on on the main card. Honey Barcelos gets a unanimous decision win over Trevin Jones. 30-27 twice and 30-25 once. One judge decided, hey, I'm just handing out 10-8s. Here you go. You, you, in my estimation, beat the hell out of, of Trevin Jones. I could see one. I could see the second round. Dropped him a couple times, hurt him, looked close to finishing. Uh, which had me as someone that advocated for and and shout out shouted out the bet of Barcelos by decision, sitting here going, I don't finish him. You don't get any finishes. And this guy doesn't get finished. He didn't get the finish. That ticket cashed. Away we go. Good win for Barcelos to get back into the win column. I don't think this one tells us anything, teaches us anything. This is the outcome we expected. I think he's back to being a dark horse in this division and a guy that people in front of him still have to worry about. But I also think the two losses that we saw prior to this remain a little bit instructive in terms of what he needs to continue working on to really move forward. Yeah. I've just written one line really about the fight and that's that Barcelos is just too good everywhere really. He's he's good. He's too good on top. Uh, he's too good on the feet. He's too good in the clinch exchanges. But the thing that it's like it's not like fifteen percent better. It's like six, right? <laughs> right. And, and that's enough. That's more than enough yeah. to look like it looked. But when you're watching, you're like, mm. he's way better than Trevin Jones. Or sorry, he's a significant margin better than Trevin Jones is but he's not such a significant margin that you're like, let's give him a top five fighter right now. Right. So, and look, Trevin Jones is quite a one-dimensional fighter. Um, hits hard, really hard, has a good chin. Uh, and that's about it. Right. Does, you know, he's, there's, there's the, the myth that he's this grappler with a black belt and got subs and whatever. 
but we don't never see, it. see him initiate the grappling. And when Hanny Barcelos was on top of him, it certainly didn't look like he had a vast get-up game. Certainly didn't look like he had a vast guard. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for Hanny Barcelos, a good win, really nice way to bounce back. Uh, a good way to sort of reintroduce himself to the division as, as you said, like, yeah, actually, motherfuckers, like, I am here and I can do the fighting. Right. Um, but it was a good stars matchup for him to do that. For sure. And it feels to me like, so when he was on his five-fight winning streak to start his UFC career and got that Timor Valiev fight, it was one of those ones to me that I I probably wrote somewhere or advocated somewhere that he deserved better. He deserved a chance to face a ranked opponent rather than an unranked, very dangerous Timor Valiev. And that fight went the way it went. I believe Valiev won a majority decision. He then gets Victor Henry at the start of the year. VW is a weird matchup, fresh, fresh name in the, in the division in the UFC, but a very experienced fighter who wins a decision on the feet because he's able to avoid all of the takedowns and things like that. I think this is the, the victory that for me, I want to see Barcelos against one of those lower third fighters in the division. Let's just, let's set that ceiling if that's what we have to do. Let's, you mentioned that he's sort of that percentage better than Trevin Jones, and it's enough to get by the Trevin Joneses of the world. So we know where he is versus the up to the upper middle class of this division because of the previous wins, right? Chris Gutierrez, some good wins in there. Now let's see him against, like, I don't want to see Ricky Simone have to fight backwards. I know Jack Shore is injured, things like that. But someone in that sort of range to see where the ceiling sits. Just to beat one of those guys, great, we're still going forward. And I think he can, because as you said, the full complement is there. And I think he was more aggressive on Saturday. I think he was more attacking on Saturday. There was a little bit more, there was a little bit more nastiness to it on Saturday. Again, quality style matchup for him. But let's just see it. This division is so good that you can, you can make those kinds of fights and not lose any ground with anybody. It's not, it's not sacrificing anybody. There's, there's a multitude of people that can step into those spots and it may be Barcelos. And so to me, that, that is my hope for going forward. He advocated for, for Rio in, in January. I think literally every Brazilian wants to be on that card. So we'll see if it happens, but it's a good win going forward. Featherweight, Sadiq Youssef does what you want to see a ranked fighter do against a regional newcomer brought into the UFC. 30 seconds, guillotine choke win over Don Chanis. You're shaking your head, head is in hands. I am just going to lay out and let you go through all of these emotions that you're showing about this fight. Have at it, sir. It's just such a mismatch, isn't it? Like... The moment the fight starts, you can see that Don's... I'm not even going to try and pronounce his second name. Shainus, is it? Thank you. I appreciate you. Um, from the moment that, that Youssef starts moving his feet, Don Shainus is like, oh, shit. This guy is doing things that I don't really understand. And I have a problem. Um, cut to four seconds later when we're in a Thai plum clinch and instead of swimming inside ties or looking to strip grips, Don Shainus turns into a Tekken character where a four-year-old is smashing the buttons 
and is just throwing whatever to try and get Yusuf off him. Then the knees come. Don Shainus buckles under the knees, panic shoots, and gets wrapped up in an arm in and gets put to sleep pretty quick. You know, uh, he's out pretty quick. And uh, I will say it again, fuck Lloyd Irvin, but clearly he knows how to teach a guillotine. So um, fair play to Yusuf. We said on the preview show that Yusuf needs to come out here and make a statement. And there's not much better of a statement than <laughs> yeah. taking a shot, you know? Yeah, that is, as I said, that's the thing. That's the thing we all hope for and we all sort of want from a fighter in his position in this situation, right? I said, maybe he's a little cautious. Maybe he's a little patient because this guy is coming in with nothing to lose. And he actually talked about it afterwards in his post-fight interview. Look, this was all risk for me, but I wanted that. All right, I'm I'm full on. I've always liked Sadiq Youssef. I know he is a very good fighter. You give me that mindset and those skills, I'm all in. I'm on board. I am I am punching my ticket for the bandwagon, even if it isn't all the way to the to the top of the division. I'm in every time because to have that mindset, to have that mentality of I don't care. Just let me get out here. Give me all of the risk. I want it. I trust my skills. I trust myself. Beautiful performance, correct mindset, very good fighter. Go ahead and add on to Nathaniel Wood. Oof. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would take it. Nathaniel's coming off the win over Jordan. He's got two wins in the division. Um, I'm going to very quickly, if I can, pull up the rankings here. Hold, please. This, see, this is the joy of having the new computer and the old computer, that I can do both. I'm not. It's lovely. I understand why all of you folks have multiple screens. I'm I'm old. I'm slowly catching up with with technology, folks. Yeah. Bear with me. Like the next five years, I can get you to turn fucking ringtones off your phone. We'll have made it. Nah, we won't get there. I like them. I like. I actually just like that it drives you insane now. The funny thing is, is that they're actually off most of the day, and then when you and I are interacting, I put them back on. I understand. Yeah, Nathaniel Wood would be lovely. Um, Sadiq Yusuf currently number twelve. Yeah, I would rather see that than see what I anticipate the UFC would do, which is a like, okay, here's Dan Ige, which we just don't need to see. The Giga Chikadze fight, if you want to do that again, sure, fine. But yep. after a 30-second win and two consecutive victories, I don't want to see Sadiq Youssef have to fight somebody that's coming off a loss and a bad loss at that in Giga Chikadze. Um, I think he asked for the Korean zombie. Sure, it's it feels like the equivalent of Arnold asking for, for Calvin Cater after London. It's Not the, let's just throw out a veteran name. So yeah, Nathaniel Wood, if, if we can convince Sadiq Youssef to fight an unranked fighter, all, give me all of that. Because it's it feels like a correct decision for the division. I like that shout, sir. That's, that's the fighting. That's, that's the fighting. Yeah. That, that fight is the fighting. Um, yes. And we uh, like the fighting. We like the fighting, and I think for somebody like uh, Nathaniel Wood, you wanna you wanna plot his rise carefully at 145 because you need to give him time to be physically ready for that division and the things that it holds. If you put Ar- um, Arnold Allen, if you put Nathaniel Wood in against a Giga Jakadze, 
you'll see the size difference, right? If you put him in against a Brian Ortega, you'll see the size difference. If you put him in against a Max Holloway, guess what? You'll see the size difference. Yaya Rodriguez, then the list goes on. So whilst Sadiq Yusuf is a is a thicker man than, than Nathaniel Wood for sure, I don't think height would play such yeah, a Yeah, stature-wise, it's not as big of a big of a difference. Right. And And I think for Nathaniel... I mean, sure, Nathaniel doesn't want to put so much size on that he's having the same problems that he was having at 135. But in the same vein, you know, weight classes need adjustments. You'll remember when Max Holloway went to 155, right, for for uh, Dustin Poirier and then afterwards said, yeah, he's a big guy. Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, and maybe if I wanted to do that, I should think about being a big guy as well. Um, and he's right. You know, this is one of the perils of weight cutting is that every weight class is such a gigantic difference um, yeah but yeah that's the fight for me Nathaniel Wooden said Yusuf let's see it the mention of every white class being such a significant difference is a very good segue because we move to Mike Davis against Slava Borshev uh unanimous decision win for Davis 29-28 30-26 30-26 odd scores to me but fine Mike Davis to me Mold. did enough he, he absolutely mauled him he absolutely mauled him. It was it was a reminder again of the takedown deficiencies. And look, we talked on the preview show. This was this was one of the things you asked about. This was one of the questions you posed. Was what does the Mark Jacasey loss do to slash for Slava Borshev? Certainly didn't do anything to change his takedown defense because those were simple. Those were easy. And in Mike Davis, a guy that isn't a wrestler that is traditionally that comes from a striking background. He was able to not only do enough to easily get Borshev to the ground multiple times, but keep him there and maintain position and have success, especially in that third round where good Lord, did he ever need it? Cause he was exhausted. And the first left hand that landed busted his eye all the way up. I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good performance. You, you gave the like, Meh about the takedown. So we'll start there and then we'll get into the, I think Mike Davis probably needs to fight a welterweight conversation. Yeah. I mean, I can probably agree with that. Mike Davis looked absolutely giganormous. So you don't listen to comms and and so you wouldn't have hear, heard this, but apparently between rounds, as he goes back to his corner, he's dry heaving in the corner of just like exhaustion, fatigue, because he's a ginormous human being yeah. that then, and, and a, sculpted chiseled physical human being that yeah. cuts down to 55 and this and so was if you're if you're in the corner doing that let's not yeah i mean to me uh fuck weight cutting right yeah um, but also i was waiting for that i thank you uh i think it's important that we look at that as a very pivotal factor as to why those takedowns were a problem like i know because I've been told by his grappling coach, what Mark Casey walks into the final day of weight cutting at. And he's a big boy, a big old boy to be cutting that sort of weight the day of weigh-ins, right? Or the day before, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever. The final part of the weight cut, anyway. Right. Mike Davis looks twice the size of Mark Casey, yes. right? He's gigantic. And, right. And I think, to, to Slava's credit, it is very difficult to stop takedowns when there is such an athletic size and weight disadvantage, just raw power for power. 
when Davis got to the hips of uh, of Slava, it didn't even look like he could sprawl, right? It didn't look as though he was able to swim for underhooks. Now, are there technical mistakes? Yes, there are lots and lots and lots of technical mistakes, right? I've written here that Davis looked good and looked patient, and he lands with combinations which opens up the grappling. The knee at the very, very start of round one was fantastic, nearly yep. put Slava all the way out. And I kind of feel like at that point, Davis was like, okay, cool. I'm going to maul him. And then when he did maul him, and to be honest, I wouldn't have been too shocked if, uh, I think it was Keith, had stopped that fight in the first round because it was a big mauling and Slava was really hurt and yep. was getting smashed up all over the place. Um, but to me, it's just Mike Davis doing his homework on Slava Claus. 100%. His team saying, you're a giant human. Have you thought about grappling? Right. That's it. So whilst Slava may have paid from, from Mark Diakasi until now, done nothing but wrestle. But I could roll at the gym with a white belt who's five weeks in, but he's 100 kilos. And I'll pro I might get fucked up, right? I might not get finished. I might not get subbed. But I might get fucked up positionally, right? Just because raw right. size, power, and stuff really right. matters. So I think in the game of MMA, yes, Slava made technical errors, absolutely. But I do put some serious stock into the fact that they looked two weight classes apart. If I ever get back to the mats, I'm going to need you to give me the direction on how to use the 100 kilos to mess up people that are significantly better than me. Sure. That, would be, that would be the only way I have any success and enjoy grappling. No problem. I do think I, I do take all of what you said and, and agree. I do think there was a little bit of Mike Davis fatigues himself at the end of that first round, going all out, trying to get that finish. We saw that he took basically the first half of the second round off, isn't thrown a lot, gets hit a couple times, and it's then like, cool, it says 245 on the clock, it's time to go. Fine. Um, this performance for me, I mean, obviously, I already said I think he needs to be a at welterweight and i understand his hesitancy i understand his desire not to because everybody wants to play to their strengths but again if you're dry heaving in the corner between rounds what are we it's just dumb we're just asking for trouble um the other takeaway for me is this is exactly why i preach patience with all of these contender series people um even through their first performances right slava looked great in that debut performance, first card of the year, settles settles Dakota push down with a with a left hand of the liver, and it looks great. It's looked very not great since, and there's a lot of work to be done if he wants to go anywhere meaningful in the UFC. We move to the prelims. Daniel Santos gets a come-from-behind victory against John Castaneda. KO finish late in the second round. My wife actually was sitting and watching this fight with me, and as we were discussing some various things, she kept being amazed that every time in the first round, Castaneda landed something serious that, that stumbled and staggered Daniel Santos. He didn't go down and he continued pressing forward and then watched in the second round as, as that guy that almost got finished is going to win this fight. And I was like, yeah, baby, he is. He's, he's very much going to win this fight because you could see John Castaneda breaking. You could see this man going, what do I have to do against this relentless marauder, marauder, excuse me, from the shoot the box Diego Lima camp? 
And the answer was nothing. The answer was you ain't got nothing to beat him because because this guy's apparently everybody in that gym is apparently channeling Charles Oliveira these days. I know you had some thoughts on some head and arm throws in this fight and some moments in this fight. But before we get to those, just like, what do you say when you see somebody when you see somebody come through that? Because it looked like three or four instances where John Castaneda is ready to get him out of there and then he just can't. These things happen in MMA, lads. These things do happen in MMA. Um, I have a lot of notes for this one, so I'm just going to run through my 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 round breakdown. So my first line is, in caps, jump the gilly. Uh, Castaneda, obviously, looks to wrap up a guillotine. Uh, Castaneda was so impressive in so <laughs> portions of this fight and then ends up getting absolutely whacked like yeah this to me is a fight that neither of them really lose because castaneda shows so many good things so let, let me let me go through this right okay. so castaneda looks for the guillotine <laughs> of santos wrestling it's pretty tight but he has a he has a problem right and the problem is he can't really get to the leg entanglement that he wants now he uses an interesting leg entanglement which is he creates a butterfly hook on the the far leg of santos santos can't go to his right because if he goes to his right which is the safe side he'd be fine but the cage was there right so he can't go to his left side because if he goes to his left side then Castaneda switches to a high elbow guillotine it stays on we've got big problems we're gonna have to start bailing and giving up bottom position and all this sort of stuff so what Santos does instead, because he feels the butterfly hook, is he can't, he, he elevates himself, right? Just basically jumps, trying to jump up and over the top, right? Getting some space for his chin and landing in a position that he can maybe scramble from. What Castaneda does really well is as he elevates him, as, as uh, Santos elevates himself, really, Castaneda keeps that butterfly hook. And as he comes back up, uses it to forward shift. But forward shifting essentially is taking your weight from having your back on the mat to sitting up. And because he still had his frames in, he could use that guillotine to get back up. And then when Santos was then fighting hands, Castaneda lets go of the guillotine, shoots on his own takedown, takes Santos down. That's really lovely. And that's really lovely for a number of reasons. One, because you often see guys jump a guillotine and then end up on bottom and they're stuck there for the round, or they have to scramble, or they have to do the things. John Castaneda, having the awareness to know that the guillotine isn't there, and then forward shifting and using it to get back up, and using it to go to front headlock, and then using it to actually have his own offensive nature in grappling, is really, really fun. Really, really fun. I mean, uh, Santos lands a very nice elbow off the break, but we then see, then it's like a bit of chaos, right? A bit of chaos ensues, and then we have the head kick. And the head kick is just, I mean, insane, right? This is this is Edmund Shabazi and eat your heart out. Throws the left <laughs> hand all the way in the pocket. And uh, Santos does the right thing and he tries to roll with the shot, but he actually rolls the wrong way. So what you want to do when you're rolling with a shot, when a shot's coming towards you, you want to show the same side cheek and then take yourself out of the way, right? You're literally rolling with the shot. You'd prefer to take the shot on the middle of your jaw or like at the top of your cheek than you would direct on the button of the chin or direct at the connecting part between your bottom and top jaw, right? You don't want to take shots there really. And obviously you don't want to take shots at the temple. So rolling with the shot generally shows sort of above your nose line to take the shot. And you'd much prefer to take shots at the top of the dome, right? Than, than you would anywhere lower. 
and Santos rolls the wrong way. Now, now you know, it, it is what it is, but uh, Castaneda has already thrown the high kick. Santos turns into Kevin Lee for the first time, giving us the wobbly leg all over the <laughs> Castaneda does a really good job of taking him down and, and doing the things, right? But this is where we then see Santos is just fantastic on the ground. Absolutely fantastic. He's looking for things. He's looking for shots. He lands an up kick on Castaneda. Castaneda's like, oh shit, I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want any of that. Then he turns up, gets back up, sat right back down with a left hand. <laughs> Sits back down and he's like, but I just stood up. Why am I on the floor again? Like, it's just absolute madness. The one that I want to talk about is the armbar setup from from Santos in that first round. Bearing in mind, he's been wobbled with a head kick badly, right? He's landed an up kick, got back up, sat right back down, and still manages to pull off this insane armbar setup, right? So he has Castaneda's arm, like, tucked between his bicep and his lats. Now, with a glove as well, that's going to be really hard to rotate out of. So he has this grip, right? And then he takes like a deep underhook grip, what's called a waiter grip, um, on, on Castaneda's near leg. He then manages to somehow go from a close guard to an armbar where he's rolling over the top. And it's just, it's just beautiful, right? Really, really gorgeous. Now, Castaneda does all the right things, rides the top pressure, rolls over the top, gets his elbow free, does the fighting. But you see at the end of the round there that Santos is like, oh, he doesn't actually have enough to put me away. And the pressure starts and you see Castaneda say, oh, fuck, I actually don't have enough to put him away. So he tries to go to the wrestling, tries to go to the wrestling, and he hits some beautiful stuff. Gets to his back from the wizard, dumps him. I've got a couple of breakdowns that maybe, maybe I'll just write the article on this fucking fight. But has a really nice breakdown, uh, really nice throws a couple, couple of times. But then there's one where he allows his hips on top of, he allows Santos's hips to fall on top of him. It's from a back body lock and he like shucks him over the side. But Santos doesn't fall, right? And uh, and Santos lands on top. We have what we have. And then round two is just just insanity, right? Absolute insanity. Santos eventually getting the finish. And I mean, just Castaneda was out about 45 seconds before then. Yeah, it, it could have been stopped several shots before that. Yeah, because yeah. you saw where it was going. Yeah. But I just don't unbelievable, ne- unbelievable comeback win. Unbelievable. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with your, this is one of those fights where nobody loses because obviously John Castaneda loses. Um, but I do also think that the the inability to get him out of there is a demerit, is a like, is a thing that limits John Castaneda in our assessment of him as we take what the fights show us, as we take what the fights teach us. It's that he doesn't have, didn't have the wherewithal, the opportunity, the decision-making in those moments to get that particular guy out of there. I don't know that that necessarily limits him forever. I don't know that it's necessary. It may just be the one-off of Daniel Santos is the guy that he's not getting out of there, and maybe nobody is. Right. That That's, that's what the fight told me, right? The fight right. told me that the first head kick would have sat a most people down the yeah. second head kick would have put most people away right most people don't have that scramble ability that ability to to know where you are on the ground and do so well when so hurt to right. get up and do the fighting i think that is something that santos has in spades right yeah and if he can if 
if, and it's a big if, but if he can put together an ability where he's not getting smashed with head kicks and things. Right. This guy can legitimately be really, really... He's a very interesting fighter right now. Absolutely. So... It's a great gym. Yeah. They're having tremendous success. It's not just Charles Oliveira. We saw Alan Nascimento in his corner who beat Hadley earlier this year. Uh, One of his other teammates won very recently, and I can't remember who it was. Um, It was a very good performance. And so for me, as as the guy that went into this saying this matchup didn't really make a ton of sense to me, I sort of owe owe Daniel Santos a mea culpa, right? I kind of said, like, this guy couldn't be... Couldn't get Julio Arce out of there. Got beat by Julio Arce, who I think is a very good fighter, a very good veteran fighter. I didn't agree. really, didn't really like the matchup, and and thought this would be Castaneda rolling. For the first five minutes, we looked to be right, and then Daniel Santos was like, "Watch this, guys. Charles Oliveira is teaching all of us how to just survive hell and come back and finish fools." I cannot wait to see this man fight again. He, like everyone else. Lobbied to be on the Rio card. We'll see. That that may end up being similar to 280, where there are 16 fights, uh, if if all of these fighters get their way. But a performance where, on a night where you sort of went in, or I sort of went in, thinking there's not going to be too many people that really show me too much that that I don't already know, that gets me really excited about the next one. Daniel Santos got me really excited about the next one. We move to the heavyweight. Delir Latifi gets a unanimous decision win over Alexi Linick, 30-27s across the board. We don't have to spend a ton of time on it. Delir Latifi did what you're supposed to do against Alexi Linick. He kept it on the feet primarily. Um, he's the smoother, faster of the two, and that's not to say he's fast. It's just he's not slow. He talked about maybe retiring at the end of this fight. Um, contract is up. He's 40 years old. He's fought once a year for the last four years. Injuries have been a big issue. He apparently fought with a very high fever and a staph infection on Saturday, which is one of those, like, why why are we doing these things? Uh, not a thing you should be doing, as as you can attest presently, potentially. Uh, not, a good, not a good look for yourself or your opponent or anything. But a good win and, and just sort of the, the performance I think we all expected in this fight. Yeah, fair play to Alil Latifi. I mean, firstly, I understand why he's fighting with a staph infection. Especially, so do I. Especially if he wanted to go out and, and retire. You know, if there's a fight to go and retire on, you don't get much of an easier matchup if you're Alil Latifi than True. Alexi Alonik, right? And if you cancel day before or day of, whatever it is, right. and then the UFC's like, that's cool, here's Taito Abbasa, or, you know, something right. stupid like that. Or, yeah, like, here's... Fight. Right. You're like, no, 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 no. This is not what I wanted. Right. I I had that one that I wanted, but got sick. Can I have that one back? And and look, you know, I think when the adrenaline's running, he probably banged a ton of painkillers and then just went in and was like, I know painkillers are banned, but like, you know, you go in and be like, ah, fuck it. You know, these things happen and never mate. It's my last fight. What are they going to do? Ban me? Cool. You know, like, (laughs) just go in, take the pain, basically. Face I should say. Did, um, didn't throw any kicks. They talked about that on, on the comms after. They talked about it during the fight. They talked about it afterwards of when he said, like, I've got the staph infection. Look, my knee's all, my shin's all blown up. They were like, oh, cool. That explains why he didn't throw any kicks. We thought we'd see him throw some kicks. And it's like, yeah, that's probably why. Hurts like a motherfucker. Yeah. That. Yeah. 
But he did things. That's the he way did to things. Be. The way and, to be like is don't give him your neck and then you'll win. Yeah. Yeah. Don't engage with him on his terms. All the best to Lear Latifi. I will always forever remember him as the guy that got tagged in last minute to face Gegard Musasi in Musasi's UFC debut. It's been an okay career. It's been a good overall career, serviceable fighter in two divisions. All the best to you, sir, going forward. I look forward to your next one. Joaquin Silva defeats Jesse Ronson in the second round, TKO, flying knee, and then coffin nails on the canvas. Another one we don't have to spend a lot of a lot of time on. Joaquin Silva figured out at the end of the first round that he can land this combination and then waited for the opportunity to land this combination in the second. That's that's what happened. I feel bad for Jesse Ronson, who I know personally and have, have spoken to many, many times over the years as a fellow Canadian. He's a guy that has just been not quite good enough to get a win in the UFC. And people will say the Nicholas Stalby fight, fine. It got overturned. Just a guy that that hasn't been able to do it in the UFC. I think Joaquim Silva, as we talked about, continues to be a, has some power, has some has some threats that he presents in the middle to lower half of the lightweight division. And that's all we need to say. I'm just getting yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah, it happened. I'm getting a head nod. That's perfect. Which brings us to Brendan Allen defeating Christoph Yadko. First round submission, rear naked choke. You had thoughts. Before we even got on here, before we went live, I should say, we were starting to talk about it. And you said, I disagree with what you have to say about Brendan Allen. So my thoughts on Brendan Allen is it might be that he's finally starting to put some of these things together. You're you're making your screwed up face, and and we will get to that. My my explanation for it in previous iterations of this fight, so the Sean Strickland fight, and to a greater extent the Chris Curtis fight, Brendan Allen has come out, had some moments, but ultimately kind of shit the bed, basically just pooed the bed. He didn't poo the bed this time. It wasn't lovely. The the takedown that got the scrambly takedown, whatever you want to call it, that put this fight on the canvas was ugly as fuck. I'm not going to sit here and say it's lovely and what what great grappling. It was ugly. But he did the right things when he's there. He gets Chris Jotko out of there, who's a guy that hasn't been easy to get out of there in the UFC. It's a third straight victory. It's, to me, the best victory of his career. And at 26, coming up on 27 in a couple of months, could he maybe be finally starting to mature, develop, turn some corners to where the, I I have always thought it was hubris that cost him in those other fights. There are moments where Brendan Allen believes that Brendan Allen is the best fighter on the planet, but hasn't worked to get to be the best fighter on the planet and it's cost him. I wonder if maybe he's starting to adjust some of that, but I now Cede the floor to you, sir. So the way that you describe the the method that Brendan Allen got to the floor is this. Two dumb fucks doing dumb things. That's it. Fair. Agreed. Jocko. Jocko. How, how Brendan Allen, right... <laughs> telegraphed that high kick like it was front page news, right? And Jocko had started to walk in as if his mom was calling him for dinner, right? <laughs> like, 
it's just what are we what are we doing perplexed right? harry comes up with the best analogies and metaphors it, it's great i love it i love when fighters just completely frazzle you i don't i don't know why you're not seeing what's happening right like not you specifically but the fighters you can tell that Alan is loading a high kick and Jocko is walking in, clearly looking for a left hook. And what happens in actuality is they both throw each other. They both throw the same thing that they're trying to throw. And Jocko looks surprised as he hamstring catches Brandon <laughs> Allen and dumps him to the mat. And honestly, I had to pause it and go back and was like, what the fuck did I just watch? Like, what the fuck did I just watch? Right. It's just super trash. Right. Like super trash. At high, and I thought about this as I was watching it. At the highest levels, if somebody is fainting a high kick, do you know what somebody doesn't do? Walk forward. <laughs> Dumb. And if you see somebody walking forward chambering a left kick, a left, a left hook, you know what most people don't do? Think, ah, just fucking throw my high kick anyway. Dumb. Both of them. Dumb. So when we hit the mat now, Brandon Allen does some nice things, right? Off his back, looks for a violin armbar. Uh, unfortunately, doesn't get it at the elbow line. And violin armbars are really difficult to finish anyway. It's a very, very finicky, very nuanced position. Um, but it's a good control position, right? And 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 he used it very well to set up the omoplata. Um, Jocko did exactly the right thing with the omoplata, just allowed Alan to, to go for the omoplata, stepped over his hips, ended up in a safe position with, with Alan still on the bottom. But this is where we get, I get annoyed with both fighters again, right? So uh, Jocko is in half guard, right? Looking to get to three-quarter mount. And Brendan Allen has what's called either a scorpion guard or lockdown, right? Lockdown essentially is when you have uh, a triangle and a, a, and a butterfly hook controlling one of your partner's legs. Now, the reason why this is useful is because you can uh, pick their leg up off the sky, which means they can't drive any weight into you off that leg. And secondly, you can swing it to side to side, right? And start to off balance them, start to negate their base on top. If somebody has a scorpion on you or a lockdown, whatever, the last thing you want to be doing is going for a cross face. And the reason why you don't go for a cross face is because you're giving Brendan Allen two hands with which to both get underhooks and use on your hips to accentuate the swings. Neither of those things happened. Jocko <laughs> had a cross face for about a minute and a half. And Brendan Allen was like, well, I guess I'm just here, aren't I? Um, yeah, I'm just here, I guess. And just did nothing, absolutely nothing. He is in the greatest position. He's exactly, he's exactly what you want from a, a scorpion or a lockdown situation is somebody to commit to the, to the upper body and allow you to use your hips. It's exactly what you want. And Brendan just looks at, just looks at the sky. Like, I mean, I guess this will be over at some point, I guess. Properly trash, really bad. Like use, like he worked himself into a good position. He got double unders. He got the, he got the lockdown. The least you could do is fucking use it. Right? <laughs> and then instead of, actually doing it and i've I've noted the time because it pissed me off so much three minutes 14 he's gone to the scorpion lockdown properly instead of actually using it he just fat man rolls him 
And it's just the most frustrating shit ever. He basically just punches an underhook and just rolls. <laughs> like some big old rolling pin with a mullet. Like, And you can see Jocko's like, oh, shit. That was silly, wasn't it? That right. was silly. And then eventually, and it was actually Alan who did the the drag dragging his hips underneath underneath Jocko. So I've written it here. Alan, Alan likes Julia, like Julia Storlienko. We'll get to her in a second. Tries a drag. And you can see this time that there's a better scramble. Alan does a good thing where he has a tight waist. And the reason why the tight waist saved him in this specific moment is he, as he drags Jocko on top of him, it was actually this way, as he drags Jocko on top of him and he's trying to build his height, he can use the left hand on the tight waist, on the, on the waist grip, to pull Jocko's hips down, meaning that he should be able to win the race, right? But all Jocko had to do is hip escape slightly to the left, weaken the, the tight waist, and they'd have ended up both either back on their feet or in a dogfight position. Again, trash from Brendan Allen for pulling Jocko's hips on top of him and trash from Jocko to not just uh, address the situation. Eventually, you know, Brendan Allen wins that exchange, goes to mount, locks up the choke really nicely through the transition, actually goes for a Dagestani handcuff. As the handcuff is released, uh, Jocko tries to base, doesn't close his chin, Alan punches a choke through, finishes really nicely. So some really nice things in there, right? The use of the Oma Plata, the use of the violin armbar to create space, the eventual finish, fine. But there's just so many fucking mistakes <laughs> inside that that it's not Brendan Allen putting things together at all. It's Christoph Jocko not punishing the mistakes of Brendan Allen and not Fair. doing the right things to punish Brendan Allen. Um, in yeah. your opinion... In my are opinion. they no no yeah well yes that is your opinion but now i'm now i'm soliciting another opinion in your opinion are they things that can be corrected are they things that can be fixed and addressed and learned and and improved upon or is this sort of more again to your estimation kind of who brendan allen is what he's learned and the way he's always going to be and so there's always going to be the limit to it You're, you're muted. How many times after a Brendan Allen fight have we asked this question? Fair. And the answer is all of them. Look, agreed. Agreed. I went into this fight. I said on the preview show, I have been a Brendan Allen supporter for a number of years. He has been a guy that I've been waiting to see him put it all together. I cannot pick him because he tends to stumble in this in these types of fights. But watch, this will be the time where he comes out and he looks good against one of these guys. I hear all of your points. He ultimately gets a finish and looked good in, in getting there. I'm very curious to see what's next. He asked for Andre Muniz. Like, sure, give it to him and let's just see. Andre Muniz didn't look great in the win over Uriah Hall. Uriah subsequently retired. No one else is looking to fight him. The UFC certainly isn't trying to hustle him any further up the rankings, it seems at this point. So do it and let's just see. That'll that'll be the let's see all of the let's see the mistakes get punished. Let's see if he can get through the mistakes not getting punished. We move to a it was a catchweight fight agreed to in advance at 140 pounds. Chelsea Chandler defeats Yulia Stolyarenko. TKO in the first round. 209. What? I mean, this 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 was just clear. Hey lady, I'm way bigger than you and stronger than you. So you're going to catch these hands and that's all we're going to have to say about it. 
which I mean is if you're if you're Chelsea Chandler, that is a thousand percent what you do. We're out here. Oh, cool. She's trying to do some stuff. Let me just see how she reacts to this. Smack. Oh, didn't like it. Great. Here we go. I will read the first line. <laughs> Not a fantastic quality to either of these ladies no. is there. No. Chandler throws her shots, turning her head away and raising her leg up as a frame. And this is a very common reaction from strikers who are absolute beginners. I then say, gets taken down immediately and passed. 15 seconds. And mounted. Yes. Yulia then rushes the armbar. Chandler rolls out, rolls her to bottom. Yulia's looking for triangles and armbars, throws up an armbar, but Chandler's posturing and lands some shots. Chandler has some range and lands a nice hard counter right, but the shots are neither accurate nor crisp, just heavy. They're thrown with a lot of shoulder and not a lot of core, core rotation. For sure, she is the better striker. The left hand right hook is finding its home. There is zero takedown defense, but does well to transition to mount off the poor takedown attempt for Yulia. And I'm going to break this takedown down because this is the one that pissed me off. So Yulia Storyenko jumps for an outside single. No problem. Tries to go around the corner to a body lock. And she either wanted to table her. And tabling is basically when I take my leg, my knee behind your knee and pull you over that knee, right? So you just fall and I'm like, thanks. Or she was looking to suplex her behind her, right? She did neither of those things. And because Chandler didn't, uh, the, the word in grappling is Kazushi, which is basically off balance, the Japanese word, because I'm fancy. Um, because Chandler didn't react to the off balance, Storylenko just fell over, basically. Yeah, she just and then tried to turn, turn it into an outside trip. And Chandler basically allowed herself to fall allowed her hips to fall on top of her and then bounced immediately into mount. If you ask for dumb things, you will get (laughs) dumb things. In MMA, if you allow yourself to put your hips on the mat before your partner, when taking them down, you are asking for danger. Mackenzie Dern had Yan Zhuanan with an arm wrapped around her, her neck in a, odd crucifix position. Now there was 30 seconds. There was no fucking way on earth that Mackenzie Dern's getting finished with a one arm choke in 30 seconds. It's just not happening. Right. But if you're Yulia Storlyenko and you don't have a Mackenzie Dern-esque guard or a Mackenzie Dern-esque knowledge of back defense, don't pull your hips underneath and a partner. Like you saw in the Mike Davis fight with Borshev, when Borshev is building back up to a turtle, Davis squats as he kicks the leg of Borshev out but his hips never touch the mat. He's waiting for Borshev's hips to touch the mat first. That's what the kick out is for. The moment that you ground a hip to the mat prior to your opponent's hips being grounded, you are in a ton of problems. Um, Yula Storylenko then escapes the first mount with what I like to call the bendy lady escape. I have used it many times (laughs) in my... uh, in in my time generally what it speaks to what what you talked about in the main event of women are more flexible dexterous 100 fluid with their movements 100 that they're able to legs all the way up under the armpit 
and kickoff. Yeah, roll kickoff, roll, roll out the bottom. Generally, yeah. how I used to use that that technique was I would grab my own leg from behind the mount and pass my leg in front of the hip and then just extend, and I'd be entering into leg locks and stuff. Because you're, a, really bit, you're a bit of a bendy lady. Yeah, I'm a bendy lady. I can put my legs behind my head and stuff and all that stupid stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, people get really annoyed because it's dumb and it shouldn't work, but it does work. Yes. Um, but if you're uh, if you're a Chelsea Chandler, uh, all you needed to do is just put your weight into your hips and drop your chest. And then it's impossible to fit feet into a place where there are no feet to fit. Um, but yeah, look, anyway, she gets the finish, right? And... Uh, and we find out that Yulia Stolyanko just isn't great, and uh, that's it, really. I mean, very much of it is is just size as well. Like, yeah, sure. she's she's not great, but it's also just physically you see the the stark difference between the two. Um, Chandler is another one of those fighters, and and look, she is she is raw. She is forest green. She is hunter green. Um. But like the UFC has this featherweight division sitting there and there are people that could populate it and none of them are anywhere remotely close to being ready to face Amanda Nunes for that title. But this to me is why five years ago when you brought this division in, you needed to actually populate it and you needed to actually work on it because they're then at this point would be some people that are ready to face Amanda Nunes. And there would be some room for these young, inexperienced fighters to gain some of that experience. Chelsea Chandler said afterwards, like, yeah, I can make 35, but it's a lot. Again, that's going to limit your upside in the UFC. That's going to limit your opportunities. So we'll probably see her fight once a year. I don't know that there's... I don't know that the the leaps and bounds progressions are coming. I think this is probably who she is and and we can just move forward. To the opening fight of the night, a fight that I know frustrates and drives you insane. Guido Canetti, first round submission win over Randy Costa, gets a rear naked choke. Basically, they're trading kicks. Guido Canetti kicks Randy Costa's leg out from under him, his plant leg out from under him because Randy Costa has thrown a kick and is slow to bring it back. Creates a scramble, jumps on his back, gets under the neck in the transition. No hooks, just like, here, give me neck. Thank you. I go home now. And Randy Costa and his fancy new mustache lose yet again and drive Harry insane. Go, sir. That's just... I I honestly, and I... (laughs) I love these fighters that leave you flabbergasted. I just... There's so much upside to Randy Costa. There really is. There really is. He's long. <laughs> he hits hard. He's quick. He's athletic. He can scramble. But he's such a shit house. <laughs> like, okay. Less of the jokes, more of the real thing. Like, okay. The thing that, that really upsets me in this is that Costa just rushes. Guido Canetti has a couple of things, right? He likes the the roundhouse kick into the spinning back kick just to create some range just in case he misses the roundhouse kick. Fine, no problem. He likes leg kicks. He's happy with a straight right hand. You know, all of these things he showed very quickly. But Costa just 
doesn't take heed of any of them. And his footwork is so rushed and so maniacal that when the leg kicks land, it looks like they're bowing his legs and it looks like it's really affecting him. And it's affecting him because he's trying to rush into the pocket or he's trying to rush to counter the footwork mistakes that he's made in the first place. And it boggles my mind. Like, just take a second, my friend. Because if we're looking at speed for speed, athleticism for athleticism, Randy Costa has all of those things in spades over Guido Conetti. And even the finish is rushed, right? Like, Costa gets up. He has an arm inside the body lock. Okay, Guido Canetti's, you know, turning him the right way. But Costa doesn't look to swim that to a wizard, doesn't look to try and get it as an underhook, doesn't really try to do anything. It's just panic. It's just panic. And then when he hits the mat, instead of being like, okay, I'll take my time. I'm very close to the cage. Let me just walk up to that cage, crawl to that cage, whatever I need to do, and I'll get myself back up. He just four points immediately. His hands base out so wide. And Guido's like, are you sure? Okay. And just fucking, and immediately you see it. You see Randy Costa's head shake like, fuck. Yeah. And it's not, and it's not even now I've got to defend. That's the problem, right? It's like I'm done here. There's, yeah, there's not even the, I've made the mistake that puts me in a bad position. It's I've made the mistakes that mean I'm done. And and not from a like, I cannot get out of this because I do not know how. It is, I cannot get out of this because I am dead to rights. This is in, I can fight whatever I want to fight. I can try to get the hand, but this thing is cinched. I'm going to sleep. So let's just be done. He feels like a guy to me when I watch him, and I have thought this throughout, and look, I'm going to pat myself on the back, pick Guido Canetti, give everybody that one on the betting show. Look, we we didn't win again this week. It was another night of losses because Mackenzie Dern didn't do Mackenzie Dern things, but we got a little better. Guido Canetti pull was a good pull, I think. When I watch Randy Costa, he is a guy to me, and it's interesting that he was back with Joe Lozon and that crew. Uh, this time because he left that group to go down and, and train at various gyms in South Florida for a couple of years. Feels like a guy that actually needs two, three years of being in the same small gym where he can get dedicated attention, good instruction, put through all of the ringers, all of the fight through every bad position, but but also needs to be going against guys that are better than him and that are gonna that are gonna force him to make these adjustments in the gym so that when he gets into the cage, those things are those things are already instilled. And I don't think he's gotten that. I think he is someone that because he is all of the things you correctly said, athletic, long, rangy, quick, good jab when he uses it, good dexterity with his kicks, like lots of good things. He's either not invested the time in improving and and building through those trouble spots, or he's the guy that is in there with the kind of JV squad and is just housing them and isn't learning. 
And so now he's probably, I mean, I think he'll get another opportunity because I do think the UFC likes him. Um, Look, it's three straight losses. He may not. And three straight losses, though. It's, it's, it's three straight stoppage stoppage losses. 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 Two of them he looked horrendous in. I do think the didn't look horrendous in the first round of, of the Adrian Yanez fight will save him. And the fact that he's a, he's one of he seems to be one of those kids that everybody likes. And fair or not, acceptable reason or not, those things tend to get you a little bit more leeway. I w- he's one of those guys to me that if he came back four years from now to the UFC, I believe he's 26. I'm going to look at this real quick. I think he's still 26, maybe 27. Hold, please. Of course that's taking a long time. He's, okay, he's 28. It's a little bit older than I was. I was going to say, he's somebody that if he came back in three or four years and had had some fights on the regional circuit and had spent a year in the gym, maybe, I, yeah, 28 is, 28 is you're kind of close to being a finished product. Technical hurdles are ones that you can overcome with rigorous training right. and, and focus, right? Because let's take, and I'll use myself as an example, right? When I first moved, from the gym that I was training at previously to the gym that I'm training at now, I made a constant London grapple. Shout out to London grapple. Um, I made a decision that I was going to try to put myself with some of the best guys in the room. And I was going to try to round out my game because at the start, when I first went there, I basically just had leg attacks. Right. And then now I've spent, I've been there a year and a bit and I focused mostly on passing and obviously some other stuff as well. Right. But mostly on passing and having a top game. Now that passing is nowhere near where I want it to be, but with some focus and with some actual thought to my training, I have been able to improve in a skill set. Right. It also, one of the things that I do is one of the best guys in the gym, every round that we train in live rounds, he starts on my back because I'm like, if he can't finish me, I'm doing something good. If I can escape, I'm doing something really good. Right. And because he's one of the better guys in the gym, if I escape with something, the next time we roll three days later, he'll have an answer for that. Right. And so So you're constantly getting you're constantly getting learning opportunities and growth opportunities and develop opportunities because you're putting yourself in a position to make those things happen. Absolutely. And you know what? It fucking sucks. (laughs) Yes. It sucks. Big balls. Because more often than not, guess what happens? You don't escape anything. Right. I either get stuck there for a significant amount of time or I get finished, right? And then the times that I do escape, He's better than me anyway, right? <laughs> right. I get out of this position and he puts me in another one that sucks. Right. Or he'll just play with me and put me back where I started. Right. <laughs> and that's fine because the other way that I look at that is, well, it's another opportunity to get out. Yeah. So if I'm Brendan Allen 
I'm looking at that. And I mean, I'm, you know, with head strikes and sparring and whatever, it's more difficult, but, but the mental side is something that I think is far harder to conquer. And that's what he has. He has the physical attributes, but he has a mental deficiency. He has an ability to slow himself down. He has an inability to use patience. And that's the problem. You said Brandon Allen, you obviously mean Randy Cosby. I mean, but but yes, that is, it's funny because going into the fight, that was one of the things that they talked about as he's in the prep point, right? It's like Randy has made an effort and focused himself on, on being more patient and being slower and not going out there and going balls to the wall for the whole. And then it's just the same thing where he's that stuttery, jittery, it's almost like you see him go out there and there's this little, like, it's one thing to be active and on your feet and, and moving. Right. It's another thing to be like, it's almost like that little six-year-old kid that had too many pixie sticks. They're just like hopped up on, on sugar and he's just kind of like jittery and it's not quite there. And then it leads to all of these mistakes. So it's a good win for Guido Canetti used his time on the mic to lobby for his brother to get a shot in the UFC as 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 has been the theme throughout Saturday's show, he too lobbied for an opportunity to fight in Rio. So we're going to get 56 fights in Rio in January. Enjoy that card, everybody. But that is Saturday. That is UFC Vegas 61. As I mentioned earlier, we do not have an event coming up on Saturday. We have an off week before we get into Alexa Grasso and Viviani Arujo. I thankfully last time we did this, we had an off week. I said, Hey, who knows what we're going to have on the, on the program for the rest of the week. We'll have to call some friends. We'll have to hurry back. We'll have to do some different stuff. And then I went and got COVID and spent the week trying not to die. Uh, Not really. I wasn't close to dying, but man, it was miserable. So knock on wood. There is some wood here. Um, This week we actually have some friends on and we do some different things and we put some content out putting up some new stuff. We've, we're going to figure out the rest of the setup. This is, this is the new desktop. This is the new lovely looking camera. It's, it's wonderful. It's great to be back. I said it on Friday when I taped the punch drunk predictions in the betting show, um, that it's, it's good to be back. It's good to be back in the swing of things. It was great to sit and watch fights yesterday and recap fights. It's great to be here today doing this with you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you to everybody that tunes in as always. Go follow Harry on Twitter at BGJ underscore Harry Powell. Severe Spotlight will be out tomorrow. He still doesn't know who it's going to be. I, I have a feeling after this conversation, it's going to be Daniel, Daniel Santos and, and John Castaneda. It probably makes the most sense. Follow me at Spencer Kite. You know where it is. All of this stuff is up on the YouTube channel. It is all available on wherever you get your podcasts. Shout to everybody that has said nice things about us doing that, about us switching those things up. So shout to Ian O'Neill for recommending it. Shouts to everybody that's following and subscribing and enjoying the content. There will be much, much more of it this week. But for now, he's Harry. I am Spencer. Thank you for watching. Enjoy your Sunday. Be good to one another. Be good to yourselves. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. And before I press end, we're grateful to have you. Ah, well, that's nice.